All right, well, we'll uh, open up our Bibles. We are going to take a quick one-week break this morning from our study in the book of Galatians. We're going to pick up next week in chapter 2. For those of you that spend some time reading ahead, Galatians 2, 1 through 14, we'll look at next Sunday. So today the elder team is introducing a handbook for deacons. This is just another important point, we think, in the life of our church. It's on the website. We'll discuss it more tonight. Uh, at the congregational meeting portion of our service tonight. Back in March of 2018, um, we did a handbook for elders. Um, both handbooks are meant to come alongside of what is the authoritative text in Scripture. Scripture is what's authoritative. These are man-made documents, but are basically designed to help us in our application of Scripture to the positions of elder and deacon. And We think that the elder handbook has been helpful, and Lord willing, the deacon one will be as well. And it includes some changes in, in, in how we think about um, the service of deacons, the function here at Grace. And so it, it seemed best to take some time this morning, look at what Scripture says about the service of deacons in the local church before you stop and think, well, I'm not a deacon and I don't aspire to be a deacon, so this doesn't feel like it applies to me. Let me encourage you to, to stay tuned in. I, I, there, there's a couple levels on which I, I, I think this does apply to us as a body. One, in the sense of serving, a lot of what we're going to talk about with deacons has to do with service, which is what we are called to as believers in the body of Christ. And the second thing is this is, this is life in the local body, seeking to apply truth to how we function as Grace Bible Church. The, the actual word deacon only occurs in our English translations of the New Testament five times. We only see that word deacon. See it mostly in 1 Timothy 3, where it's talking about the qualifications for deacons, and then once in the opening of the book of Philippians. And we'll look at those passages in a little bit. But the, the, the Greek word that's translated as deacon sounds a lot like our English word. It is diakonos. Sounds pretty similar to what we have as deacon. And it shows up in the New Testament 29 times. It's just that the vast majority of those times, it's translated as servant. That's basically what it means, one who is a servant. And that's the normal translation. So when Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant of all, he uses that word diakonos, must be the diakonos of all, must be the servant of all. In Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable and he talks about his king, a king who is giving command to his attendants or his servants. And there again, it's a diakonos. Not only does it New Testament use diakonos to talk about the servants to a king, it actually uses it to speak of the king himself. When you get to Romans chapter 13, and it speaks of those who are rulers, who are kings, twice in Romans 13, it calls them ministers of God. It's really servants of God. It's diakonos of God. Um, and so we pray for our leaders, as we did a few moments ago, to fulfill that calling, that a requirement of God to be servants who care for people who are made in the image of God. Nothing ultimately describes the role of a deacon more clearly than the name diakonos. It is servant. It is what they have been called to is to be servants. Uh, there's a sense, obviously, in which every believer then it, it, it is a servant. We all would hold that, that name diakonos in that sense, and that's clear in the New Testament, um, we are called to serve one another. We are called to serve the Lord. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, we're speaking about the freedom that we have in Christ. In Galatians 5.13, it says that we should use that freedom in love to serve one another. 
that we would be servants. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4, where it's talking about spiritual gifts, the fact that we've been given capacities for ministry, gifting by God, he says it is to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. So God is very clear that for all believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to and equipped to serve one another, to be about that, that ministry to each other within the body of Christ. If we're all to serve one another, then what's the distinction then with deacons, with a particular identification of deacons? And so I'm going to start in Philippians 1.1. We'll put it up on the screen. You can turn there if you want, but Philippians 1.1. And Paul begins his letter to the church at Philippi, standard sort of introduction to the letter by identifying the writer first, himself in this case, and Timothy. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's who the letter's from. What's significant is he doesn't use diakonos there when he speaks of himself. It is doulos, which is the common Greek word for slaves, for servants. It's one of those words that probably has gotten lost in translation going all the way back to the King James and the reluctance to use that word slave because of all of the implications in that. And yet that is the word that Paul is writing. We are bought by Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed by him. We belong to him as master. And so he's using the term doulos there. But he says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So, so this verse, Philippians 1.1, is, is helpful in us understanding this this idea of there being a, a position of deacon. It indicates that he is writing to the whole congregation, the whole body of believers, but he also specifies out elders who are called to, to shepherd, to oversee, to care for the flock, but he also gives this other position. We sometimes talk about offices in the church, and offices may or may not be a, a helpful word because of what we import into it, but he, he clearly shows a distinct group of servants, diakonos, who were identified by their serving of the body. In our handbook for deacons, we've intentionally used the language organized servants to try to, to, to capture what seems to be this biblical distinction between all believers called to serve in the local church and to serve the Lord and serve one another, and deacons who are specifically identified for their faithfulness, their, their proven character, the service that they've already been giving and are identified for specific needs in that local church under the leadership of the elders. If you would turn to Acts chapter 6, we'll spend a few minutes in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 does not use the word deacon, but it has historically throughout the New Testament church been a passage that, that has been looked to for a, a prototype of sort of a description of, of what the diaconate might look like, of what the serving of deacons might look like. And so in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. We'll stop there for a moment. Think about the context. This is early in the life of the New Testament church. 
Those who have largely come to faith in Christ are Jews who have come to see Jesus as their Messiah. We could go back to Acts chapter 2 in the preaching at Pentecost where thousands come to faith in Christ. They are Jews both from in and around Jerusalem and also many who have pilgrimaged there to have come to Jerusalem. And so they are from outside cultures, but they are Jews by ethnicity and they have come to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. It should come as no surprise in a fallen world that even amongst the, the sweet unity of the early church that we see throughout the early chapters of the book of Acts, there were still divisions. There were Jewish Christians who spoke Greek, and there were Jewish Christians who spoke Hebrew, and, and they began to have ethnic issues with one another. The Greek-speaking Hebrews were probably people who had descended from folks who had been dispersed and some of the Roman persecution and some of what had gone on historically had been dispersed throughout the empire, and so they have descendants who come back to Jerusalem. Um, and so there's these, these two different cultures, if you will, sort of rooted in Jerusalem, Judea kind of Jewishness, and there are those who are from throughout the Roman Empire and who speak Greek and are, are used to other things. And so David Peterson, a commentator on this, writes, old prejudices and resentments may have reasserted themselves or appeared to have been an issue when practical problems relating to the care of widows became obvious. Christians in every age and social context need to be aware of the threat that cultural and racial differences can pose to their unity in Christ. We need to catch in this passage the importance with which the apostles respond to this, the, the sense of awareness that this is a serious matter that has the potential for greater harm. The one thing that those early believers probably had in common, or at least a lot of them had in common, was, was in some sense of financial need. As, as we've already gotten the sense from the early chapters of Acts, when they became believers in Jesus Christ, they weren't exactly embraced by family and community because they were now embracing Jesus Christ as Messiah, the same one that the Jewish leaders had had crucified. And so for many of these Jews who come to faith in Jesus, they're now being ostracized by family and by community. And so we see early on, Acts chapter 2, there is this worshiping together and pooling together of resources, some selling their belongings so that they can share with others because of some of the poverty that goes on. That's at the heart of what's happening here. There is this daily distribution of food. There is this care and provision for those who are in need. So let me read the rest of this. A complaint, verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. There's, there's a really interesting balance that we should see here, and that is the apostles, are, they are leading the church in Jerusalem at this point. This is early. There has not been appointment of, of elders to lead local churches. The church is largely rooted in Jerusalem, and it is the twelve who are leading at this point, and they understand that Jesus uniquely commissioned them to lead that flock. They understand all the things that we saw back when we studied the Gospel of John, that Jesus has been putting on them now to be leaders who shepherd that flock, who teach that flock. And so they're very much aware of the responsibility to teach the Word of God and to pray for the flock, and, and that is something that's not optional. They have been called to do that. 
But this conflict over distribution of food to widows is, is no small matter. What's interesting to see is that the Spirit leads the apostles to see right away that this can become a matter that could easily carve even greater division, taking cultural issues now and ethnic issues and bringing them into the life of the church and dividing the church. And so the apostles essentially say, we're going to do what God has equipped us and called us to do. We are responsible before Christ to teach the word, to pray, to, to focus on these things. But we understand that this, this is a crucial ministry that must be done well. This can't be mismanaged. This can't be sort of brushed over. It needs to be handled. And so therefore, we want to see seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wise. Seven men who are proven, who have character, who have wisdom, who show that they are in submission to the Spirit to take this responsibility and, and now to allow the apostles to do what they are called to do and to make sure that this is carried on. And so they, they call on the believers, bring forth men that you believe meet these qualifications, and we will appoint them to do this. Those seven then provide what for us is kind of a prototype again, sort of a pattern for what the, the New Testament deacon looks like. And so I would, I would put three things that I think we can draw from this to help us think about deacons. Number one, they were organized to serve the body of Christ. This wasn't just a mere general appointment, but rather there's a group that's organized to serve for a specific need. They are appointed by the leadership in order to keep the leaders focused on what they were called to do. I don't know about you, but, but I can be distracted. Um, I, I, I can get off task, and the, the appointment here is to say, no, you stay on what God has called you to do. Don't get distracted by some shiny object, but stay focused on what you're called, and we will do this. And so they are appointed by the leaders in order to keep the leaders focused. And then third, it spells out the fact that they were deemed to be qualified, wise, spirit-filled examples in serving. If you read the early part of Acts, you see that the, the young New Testament church seems to to get along so well. There's so much that we read in those early chapters of Acts and we just say, that just looks so wonderful in the sense of community and belonging to one another and the togetherness that is there, uh, the worshiping together and the care for one another. And, and so on one hand, you could almost foresee a situation where the, the apostles say, hey, we've got a problem here with food distribution. Come on, everybody, let's, let's get it together on this. But they clearly sense that this is more serious. There's a sense of disunity that's growing and injustice. And so rather than a general call, the apostles organize a specific team to do a specific task. This is what you have been called to do to make sure that, that care and ministry goes on the way it should. And that's essentially how we've tried to approach this service of deacons in the the deacon handbook. Our, our handbook says that while all believers are servants, some are specially called to serve in a formalized capacity to enable the elders to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This is in no way failing to acknowledge the fact that as a body of believers, there are servants all throughout this body who do all sorts of wonderful tasks that serve Christ and serve this body and cause this body to function Apart from deacons, apart from elders, there is service that goes on all the time in this body uh, by gracious believers who are serving the Lord. But there is clearly some distinction here that the apostles have patterned for us of a specific team being organized. And so what we've tried to do in our handbook is to say that we're going to organize deacons into to serving teams. 
to, to identify particular areas of responsibility. For instance, care for the, the building and the grounds, care for benevolence sort of needs that might come up, um, making sure practical needs are met on Sunday mornings when, when you come here in terms of the facilities and the, the environment here. And what the, the deacon handbook strives to do is to delegate those ministries to a particular deacon, or in some cases, a deacon working with an elder, who then form a, a serving team to make sure the task is done, to take and, and bring just a, a degree of organization that, that enables that task to be done in a God-honoring way. In the words of one writer, deacons do not own areas of ministry. Rather, deacons facilitate congregational ministry under the leadership of the elders. The goal is, is similar to what we see in Acts chapter 6, to have enough organization to make sure that the practical work of ministry is done well, to do our very best to make sure that people in needs don't slip through the cracks, and to keep the elder team focused on task, doing what it has been called to do in shepherding and overseeing. It's to be an act of wise delegation. Good point for me here as we're thinking about this, to pause and, and to say, one thing that is not new is we have been blessed with wonderful servants of God who are our deacons. Um, th th this is not altogether new. Some of the, the, the packaging of it and, and format of it changes a little bit, but we have been blessed with wonderful servants who have served this body of believers and continue to serve them. I, I never cease uh, to, to stop usually, and it's, it's looking back when I go, huh, that was taken care of, that was done. I never even had to think about that, and it was done. And a lot of that is, is, is good work within the body of Christ serving, and a good chunk of that is, is our deacons. And I wouldn't mind if we pause for a moment here and just thanked them and honored them for their service. bad-looking group either, huh? <laughs> they are organized to serve. They are appointed by the elders. In the process of appointing deacons, we're, we're striving to draw on that, that model of, of Acts chapter 6. We, we've said this before, saying it now explicitly in the handbook, and that is it is our desire as elders to receive recommendations for deacon candidates from covenant members. In other words, we, we ideally should be doing what we see at least patterned here in Acts 6, which is that word to the congregation, to the membership of, of recommend guys to us and we'll appoint them to the task. And so that's what we would encourage you to do. That's what we're in the process now of starting to do is, is identifying guys who are already serving and who seem to be qualified and, and identifying them as potential elders. And so we would encourage you to do that recommend guys to the elders, would encourage you as well. It's not a requirement, but it would encourage you as well. If, if, if you're identifying a guy who's not a deacon, but you think he has the potential to, is go and talk to him and encourage him in, in his service and let him know that you, you would like to recommend him. The, the third element in Acts 6 is the idea of qualifications. And so let's turn to 1 Timothy 3, because that's where this really gets fleshed out is 1 Timothy 3. Acts gives a broad framework that, that stresses Proven character, men of good repute, good reputation, men who are wise, men who are filled by the Spirit is what we get in, in the book of Acts. The seven clearly had those, those, those reputations, 
They appear to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit means to be under God's control. It is to be submitted to God's control. And they have demonstrated wisdom in the way they speak, the way they act, the way they handle life choices. They've shown a godly tact and discernment. Besides Philippians 1, we saw Paul and Timothy to the elders, the deacons. Besides that, this is the one other place then in the New Testament where we've got this specific position of deacon. And it's here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul starts by instructing the church. This is helping Timothy to establish local churches. And so the one thing he must do is appoint elders. And so he gives the qualifications for elders at the start of 1 Timothy 3. And then he says, you need deacons. Here's the qualifications for deacons. Here's what that looks like. And so 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. All right, we'll survey the qualifications in just a moment, probably a little bit of a 30,000-foot look at the, at the qualifications. But let's talk about this one potential hot potato in this passage, and it's the one that comes up in verse 11. Some of you are wondering, is he going to talk about that one or not? If you see in the ESV translation, um, their wives likewise, some of them have a footnote at that point after that, uh, after their wives likewise. Some, some don't. I'm just looking at mine, and it doesn't, but the ESV that I had on my computer does. And the footnote says that the actual literal translation there of that phrase, their wives likewise, could be either Wives, likewise, or women, likewise. That it's, it's either one or the other. It's the Greek word that, that could easily and rightly be translated as wives or women, followed by likewise. Paul did not include a pronoun. So when we read in the ESV and it says their wives, it might have been much clearer had he actually used the word there, but that is a translator's decision to put it there. He didn't. Uh, so we have either wives likewise or women likewise, followed by just this string of adjectives. Dignified, not slanderous, temperate or sober, faithful in all. There are good biblical scholars with reasonable arguments who say that this list is a list of qualifications for the wife of a deacon, assuming that he's married. There are equally good biblical scholars with reasonable arguments who say it's a list of qualifications for women who serve as deacons. If you find yourself thinking at some point he's being very careful about his word choice at this point, he is, he's trying to, I'm trying very hard um, just to make sure that you understand. There are, there are two sides in this discussion who really are not at odds sharply with each other. It's, it's not a heated debate. Um, But there clearly are arguments for both wives, likewise, women, likewise. Grace Bible Church has historically held loosely to the view that verse 11 is about wives of deacons. That's how we have applied it, and that's how we will continue to maintain that posture. But here's why I say we, we do so and we have held it loosely, because first of all, as far as I know, Um, The elders of Grace Bible Church have never been overly definitive, have have never been dogmatic in the sense of this is what 1 Timothy 3.11 says unequivocally. It means 
this, wives of deacons. Um, there's been some instruction along that lines, but there's never been those sort of definitive, unequivocal statements. Second, we understand that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who hold differing views on this, and, and both have thought their views out, and most, if not all, that, that I've read on this are always willing to, to say, but this side also holds this view. I, I've, I've not seen arguments that say, this is an open and shut case, it is this, and it can't possibly be this. It's usually, I think it's this, here's the arguments of why it's this, but here are the arguments for why it, it could be that. All that to say this is not one of those issues that should divide us. This is not one that we go to the stake over. Let me be really clear here. We are positively affirming the view that GBC has held that, that verse 11 speaks of wives of deacons while not rejecting out of hand any possibility that this could be speaking about women serving as deacons or individuals or churches that hold that view. We've partnered with some of those churches in the area of missions before, churches that have female deacons. This is not a dividing point. That's all I'm going to say about that. If you have any other questions, there are a number of other elders who would love to talk to you about it. They, most of them were here in the first service. I got Dave here in this one. Who else is stuck around that I can still point to that you can, you can corner? Um, anyway, if you have any questions, we're happy to talk to you more about it and happy to discuss it uh, some more tonight. Let's talk about the qualifications um, concerning elders. And, and, and I would say that I think you could summarize these with two words, proven character. Proven character. All of the verbs that are used in this passage are all present tense verbs. In other words, this is who this man is. This is who he, who he is now. He didn't one day pass a test to be a deacon and was qualified. He remains in this state of being, as being this kind of, of guy with this sort of proven character. It is descriptive of who he is. And so I would say first that we'll go to verse 10. He is proven. Let them be tested first. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Hopefully, you would, the, the, the majority of the congregation would not be surprised at a man who is nominated to be a deacon and go, who's this guy? We've never heard of this guy before. The, the idea of what it's saying here is if somebody is to be a deacon, it is, it's because he's already been identified. He's already been proven as someone who has served in the body. And, and, and the body is simply recognizing the fact that he has been serving in that way. When it says he's been tested and proven blameless, blameless does not mean sinless. It's, it's a legal term, very much like when it speaks about elders being above reproach. It doesn't mean perfection. What it speaks about is there's no accusation hanging over this guy. He has served, the body has seen him serve, and there's not this sort of lingering question about his motives or his morals or his purity, his character. There's not this sort of, ah, there's something there that we that we're still haven't quite settled. By blameless means he is without accusation of wrongdoing against him. Back to verse 8 speaks really to character now. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. He is dignified. He is sincere. 
He's somebody that can be trusted. He's not someone who will, as it says by double tongue, say one thing to one person, be a people pleaser, who then will say the opposite to someone else to keep them sort of on his team, so to speak. He, he will speak the truth in sincerity. He has self-control. He's not given over to addiction or materialism, as he describes here. Deacons may well be involved in in situations of need, caring for people who are in need, personal situations, involvement in people's lives, and the qualification here seems to stress the fact that he is trustworthy. He will treat people with respect, and he will not take advantage of the stewardship that's been given him in that service. He is dignified, not double-tongued. He is somebody who is not given over to addiction or materialism, to, to addiction or greed. Verse 9 says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 9 really has the idea that a deacon must have a firm hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's talking about when it speaks about the faith here. This isn't talking about mystery sort of in the sense that we might routinely define that word. Mystery in the New Testament usually has the idea of something that was once partial, maybe hidden in some way, but has now been fully revealed. And so much as the Old Testament looks forward to a coming servant, a savior, a Messiah, a sacrifice, we now know in Christ that that has been revealed. The mystery has been unfolded in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when he says here that they, they have a hold of the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, it's saying they've, they've got a hold of the gospel. They've got a firm hold of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They understand and can articulate the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Just a side note, verse 9, when it says, hold the mystery of the faith. It, it, is, it is common in our culture these days to sort of speak in faith in sort of ambiguous, vague generic kind of terms, having faith, a faith, my faith, everybody sort of has some faith in something, and, and the culture uses that kind of faith language sometimes in very general ways. The New Testament does not. The New Testament speaks of the faith, that which has been given through Jesus Christ. And so in the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts, it is often referred to as the faith. Last week in Galatians chapter 1, we saw that, that the people who saw Paul said he is now preaching the faith he once persecuted. Jude 3 speaks of the faith once delivered. All of that to say, as 1 Timothy 3 does here, there is a, there is a specific faith a deacon must be able to articulate, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not left vague. It is not unclear as to what it is we are putting our faith in. We are believing in a perfect Savior, Son of God, who came and who gave his life on the cross, who died and rose again, and who is coming again. And it is the ability to hold firmly to that truth unwaveringly and to be able to articulate that that deacons are called to. This would... The, the, the one distinction in the qualifications for elders and deacons probably is in this area. In terms of elders, it says they must be able to teach, able to uh, proclaim sound doctrine and refute or, or contradict error in doctrine. And here for deacons, it says holding to the mystery of the faith. It's charging elders with understanding sound doctrine, being able to clearly teach it to others and being able to stand up against error. For deacons, it's saying it needs to be a clear holding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that a deacon can't teach or can't refute doctrine. It's just saying that the bar is set higher for the elders, but nonetheless, a deacon is called to hold firmly to who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. 
Verse 12 then says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. A deacon is to be a one-woman man whose family reflects his godly leadership. One of the reasons the qualifications for elders and deacons look to the family is because his leadership should be a reflection of Christ in the home. There should be that that demonstration of, of godliness, of humility, of the love of Christ that flows through his life and his care for his wife and children. There should be that kind of sacrificial loving leadership that is seen in him managing his family well with love and with grace. And his wife should also then reflect that character, someone who deals with people with respect, not speaking ill of them, but rather seeing ministry as a serious calling. It's called to be a one-woman man. In a culture like ours, where moral impurity runs rampant, this statement is clear that if this man is married, he needs to be entirely committed to his wife. That needs to be reflected in his thoughts, his actions, and his deeds, that there is no question about the stability of his marriage and his devotion to his wife. Last verse in this section is verse 13. It says, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When Paul talked about elders back in verse 1, he said that a man who aspires to be an elder, he desires a noble task. And and so this is kind of his similar commendation here for those who are faithful as deacons. Um, it It is his way of saying, and deacon service, however challenging or difficult it might be, is a worthy calling. What he addresses here when he speaks of this gaining a good standing and great confidence, we read that and it it sounds odd language to us as if he he holds something special. He gets a special parking spot or something like that. You know, he's got good standing and so he gets treated differently. And that's that's not the idea here. By God's design, serving in the body of Christ comes with its own built in rewards. You and I know this. You don't have to be a deacon to experience this. There is the joy of serving Jesus Christ, whatever that is, whether it's cleaning, children's ministry, greeting, folding bulletins, you name it. It is the joy of ultimately serving Jesus Christ. It is the the, the wonder of of being able to have gifts and skills and talents that God has given you to be able to use in that service. It is just the the gratitude we have of of being able to be good stewards of talents and time and resources he's given us. And then there's just the blessing of ministering to others. There's the ability to to just have that experience of feeling like you've, you've done something that somebody else has been able to benefit from and has been able to grow as a result of. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should find some of our greatest joy in serving in the body of Christ and finding ways to serve Christ as we minister to others. And who better to know that than deacons, than than those who have been called and challenged with this specific appointment. If our highest calling in life is to honor and glorify God, then serving in the body of Christ ought to be wonderfully encouraging. That doesn't mean it's trouble-free, um, there will be challenges in serving. We, we, we all know from experience, we don't always serve perfectly, nor is our service received perfectly. There are times that we do things that, that 
by heart motive and intent are intended to be sacrificial acts of service and are not received as such and are not received with gratitude and sometimes are even responded to with criticism. And yet, if we believe the words of Jesus Christ that whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, then our serving others is the place of honor before our Savior. It is the, the place that Paul spoke of when we, we saw last week at the end of Galatians 1 when, when he says, they saw me and they glorified God. They watched my life and they glorified God. That really is, that's, that's what our calling to service looks like. It is a chance for people to magnify the greatness of our God and to see him at work through us, to see Christ in and through our lives. The faithful service of a deacon or any believer, for that matter, puts us in a wonderful place where people see Jesus in us. And so the, the standing is to be standing in that place, being able to, to model, demonstrate, glorify God so people see that in the service. The confidence comes from, from just serving him and, and, and knowing that in our service we are doing things that we would not ordinarily do, that apart from Christ we would not sacrifice in this way, we would not be humble in this way or serve in this way, that it must be God's spirit kindly working through us to accomplish these things. And that's what the confidence is he speaks of. It's not a self-confidence. It's a sense of confidence of walking with God that as you serve and as you see fruit from that ministry, it is God's kind way of blessing you and I and saying, look, see what I'm, see what I'm doing? See what I'm accomplishing? Give me glory and, and be thankful that you're a vessel through which I'm, I'm doing those things. That's ultimately the work of deacons, as they are called to. It is, on a broader sense, the work of all of us to serve one another and serve the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for faithful servants in Grace Bible Church. Thank you for just the many, many people that you have empowered gifted with skills and talents and set within their spirit a, a willing sense of desiring to serve you first and foremost and in so doing to serve this body of believers. Thank you for the work that you've done. You deserve the glory and the credit and we, we give that to you. This is your body of believers. We pray that we would be faithful stewards the talents and gifts, skills, time, resources that you've put here. Thank you for our deacons. Thank you for those who have served so faithfully in all of the, the tasks that they have done and continue to do. Thank you for men who are willing to, to be on call, to be delegated into ministry. Thank you for what you've accomplished through them and what you will continue to do. Give us wisdom, we pray, as we seek to identify others who would be faithful, proven in character and service as deacons. Thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the perfect model, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you that in Christ we are continually challenged to see what sacrificial, loving, gracious service looks like. Help us to do that by the power and work of your spirit in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.